0: We spent Sunday at Park yesterday for the first time all season. It's a little bit sad, but it is a joyous reunion back here in the podcast studio. And I got to ask, how was your Sunday?
1: Sunday was good. Very busy. Very happy about that Red Sox win. Uh, You know, it's officially October. We're starting to, uh, I think, honestly, this was maybe my favorite week of the season thus far in terms of just pure football production. We had a lot to talk about this week, and I'm really excited to get into it.
0: I love that. It was a great football week. Yesterday was one of the great sports days in recent memory. I, at one point, tweeted out that I wished Scott Hansen could figure out a way to get the baseball games into the quad box because that's, I was just going back and forth, back and forth, and there was no time to think about anything else, even though I probably should have been with all my homework. So, still reeling from that day. Didn't sleep a ton last night, but ready to get the takes out to the listeners today. And we're going to start things off as we always do with the four things we learned, parentheses, we think. But the first thing I think we learned, Kale, is that the Arizona Cardinals are pretty legit. And they were obviously road dogs at the Rams this week. It was a great spot for them with the Rams coming off an emotional Sunday night win. And the Cardinals just put it to them in a way that I don't think even optimistic Cardinals betters expected. And while I don't necessarily think this win instantly makes them NFC favorites, I think they have to be much more in the consideration than I would have previously stated going into the week.
1: Yeah, certainly. It really, uh, I I mean, we can talk all day about, you know, Kyler Murray is the best that he's looked, just the sheer number of offensive weapons that this Cardinals team has at their disposal, whether it be Chase Edmonds or James Conner in the running back room. You know, DeAndre Hopkins hasn't even seen his fair share of shine this year, but A.J. Green looks completely rejuvenated from his days in Cincinnati, and even factoring in, you know, a Rondell Moore, a Christian Kirk, getting Max Williams involved, the tight end, I think he would be really good if he was in any other offense, and they're finally starting to actually properly utilize him and integrate him, but I think what was more telling about this game, for me at least, was this, uh, this really brought this Los Angeles Rams team back to earth. You know, Matt Stafford didn't look as potent as he'd been You know, Cooper Cup finally got humbled a little bit, uh, for lack of a better term, but I'm really impressed with this Cardinals defense. It's really been an outlier considering what we all thought headed into this year. Uh, We thought it was going to be a bit of a bend, don't break offense, a bit of, you know, kind of a Chiefs or Bills model where you think a team like this would be so reliant on an aired out offense rack up points and just hope the other team doesn't keep up with them. But this is a defense that's really been able to stand on its own at this point.
0: Absolutely, and at the beginning of the year, we saw them dominate week one up front, Chandler Jones with the five sacks, and we know they have J.J. Watt as well, who's obviously on the tail end of his career, but can still be productive, and yesterday, I think what they proved was that their secondary is pretty legit. I mean, you look at Jalen Thompson, Jordan Hicks leading the team in tackles, Byron Murphy coming up with the interception. I think Buda Baker has always been a pretty useful player and has proven that at various points over the past few seasons, and Yeah, I mean, if the Cardinals have just a serviceable defense, I think they're right there assuming Kyler's healthy moving forward, which, I mean, he hasn't seemed to get hurt yet. So, I mean, we talked about Kyler as a potential MVP candidate a quarter of the way through last year, too, and I don't want to be a broken record year after year, but I think if we had the voting today, there he is.
1: Jax, you better knock on some wood because I really don't hope that you just jinx something (laughs) right there. I mean, Kyler's looks fantastic, and the last thing I would want to see is a – NFL season without Kyler, especially him performing at this level. But I mean, you know, hats off to Cliff Kingsbury as, you know, as much as you really want to tout him. I think a lot of this does come down to the skill position players, but, you know, we've seen a little bit more inventiveness from Cliff Kingsbury. We've seen, you know, it's not just, you know, lining up DeAndre Hopkins on the outside and letting Kyler air it out to him. This isn't just air raid. We're seeing a little bit more inventiveness. You know, Rondell Moore's getting some touches in the run game. We're seeing uh, Chase Edmonds get involved in the passing game way more. Uh, I think this is, you know, I'm pretty optimistic on a Cardinals team that I thought was just going to be a fun little threat to ruin some things for some top contenders and, you know, You know, it's a team you want to follow and hit the over with a lot, but it wasn't any sort of real legitimate contender for a deep run in the playoffs, but at the same time, I think this team's really proven a lot of us wrong.
0: Yeah, and here we are. There's one more game to go tonight, obviously, and the Raiders can join them, but the Cardinals are the only team that are 4-0. That's a quarter of the season. We're starting to get to a sample size where we start taking these things fairly seriously. Uh, One point I do want to make about the Rams, though, is that this was kind of a a schedule loss in a way as well. I mean, you're coming off a dominant emotional home win over Tom Brady uh, on, you know, the Fox Sunday game of the week. And then you're looking ahead to Seattle in Seattle on Thursday night. So that's, I mean, when you're waking up on Sunday preparing to play two games against division rivals in the span of five days it's got to be a little bit more difficult to really be motivated for both games. Whereas the Cardinals came in flying high, underdogs, nothing to lose, you know, dropping it all on the table. So I do think that the Rams, you know, if if we play this game in a vacuum in January, I don't think it goes the same way. But all props to the Cardinals. more things from yesterday I mean people were gonna wait for us to get to the rookie quarterbacks that's something that we've been touching on every week and we watched a Sunday night game that featured one of them extremely heavily and we promise we'll get to him but I think Kale you actually wanted to start at the beginning of the week with a guy that you know people haven't been talking about as much uh, that being our boy Trevor Lawrence what'd you see from him
1: yeah I mean my main takeaway from this has really just been uh, I mean I've, I've been giving my little rookie report every week in here Almost, it feels like. And last week I talked about that a lot of the rookies folded a little bit. Uh, you know, they needed some a little bit more time to develop. This was the first real evidence across the board almost universally where, uh, you know, I could confidently say that, you know, I think the rookie quarterbacks in this game finally met some of their projections. Let's start with Thursday night. Trevor Lawrence putting up the highest QBR that he's posted this season. Trevor Lawrence has really led the league in some turnover-worthy plays, some really egregious stuff through the first three weeks, and I think that's more his level of confidence in working the ball and actually trying to force things that you know might not be there. And he might still be in a little bit of a Clemson mindset, but you know, a QBR of 82.3, putting Jacksonville in a position to win this game, uh, you know, obviously didn't work out. Last-second field goal, Joe Burrow kind of taking over toward the end, a little bit of a repeat of 2019, but. Uh, You know, really, at least not impressed with what I've seen from Trevor Lawrence, but you know, water finds its level. Trevor Lawrence is actually kind of playing up to what we thought he would be uh, coming out of Clemson. Uh, Zach Wilson getting his first win of the season, an overtime victory over the Titans. And I think, you know, some of those passes were, you know, by far the best that we've seen him put up this season. That, uh, that, 53-yard touchdown bomb to Corey Davis was really, really impressive. Rolling out in, you know, a lot of time and finding a real tight window for Davis to catch on a 53-yard strike through the air. Uh, Wilson putting up some of the better numbers he's posted this year. Justin Fields, night and day from what we saw last week. And I think part of that comes in, comes in the form of naggy handing over-the-play calling reins. To the offensive coordinator, as Bless he admitted. What's up? Oh, Bless up for thank real. goodness! Thank goodness! <laughs> it's listen. It's still nauseating the fact that Nagy's going into press conferences and saying that Andy Dalton's going to be their guy. But I mean, it's it's what we thought Justin Fields was going to be coming out of Ohio State. It he's able to run the ball, he's able to f- stretch the field with his legs. Some of those strikes, especially the couple he had to Darnell Mooney, I mean, r- great balls by Field. Moved on to Mac Jones. I mean. I don't think we've really seen, uh, you know, his field stretching ability, I don't think we've seen a lot of multifaceted passing from Mac Jones, but uh, Josh McDaniels and Bill Belichick really put the game in his hands, only rushing eight times for negative one yards, the worst rushing performance in Patriots franchise history, fun fact for you, but I mean, Mac Jones throwing the ball 40 times, a lot of short and intermediate stuff, but really up-tempo offense, and just Against the goat, against you know the homecoming king, Tom Brady returning to Foxborough, putting the game in Mac Jones's hands, a rookie in his fourth game of the season, I'm continued to at least be confident in the fact that Mac Jones, if he continues to develop, if he continues to improve his game, can certainly be the guy to actually lead New England to something. Because I mean, this defense looks great, and the skill position players are improved over last year. But I mean, I can't give universal praise. To these rookies. Trey Lance, you know, he's getting half his yards on a busted coverage. Debo Samuel and a seventy-six yard touchdown pass. Uh, in nine for eighteen, 157 yards. And it it didn't look, you know, didn't look fantastic at points, but gets the job done. I think there's still it's a raw talent for sure. But I think there's still stuff there. And listen, if if I'm gonna give praise to rookies, I need to universally pan Davis Mills. I mean, it it <laughs> was it was bad at points (laughs) i think there was a point where he i mean the fumble on the first drive of the game just ball slips out of his head i get it's a little rainy but man that was embarrassing it was Peter esque 11 for 21 87 yards four interceptions three sacks a forced fumble not even i it it felt like an unforced fumble to me but three sacks a qbr of 0.8 fun little fact for you Texans averaged nine point one yards per drive against the Bills. And, oh. and in a forty to nothing shutout, the worst loss in Texans history. There were points I thought in the first quarter where if Tyrod Taylor's the quarterback, this is a much closer game and it gives the Bills a run for their money. Because Houston defense looked very solid at points, you know, holding holding the Bills to four and outs, intercepting Josh in the first pass of his game, Josh Allen, the first pass of his game. But I, every opportunity that the Houston defense gifted their offense, David Davis Mills just spilled it away.
0: Oh, you took some heat for your uh, for your Texans takes already this week. Uh, I believe the exact quote you had was, uh, this was shaping up to be the upset of the week before Davis Mills just kind of stepped in it. and. Uh, you know, hyperbole aside, I think we can all agree that was one of the toughest viewing experiences of the weekend. But uh, let me just, you know, briefly hit back over some of the points on your soliloquy there. And I love our, uh, our rookie quarterback segment every week. Uh, I think we all still believe in Lawrence. He's taken some time to figure it out. I think Wilson getting the W is great, and not only was the one throw, the the bomb touchdown great, the throw he made to Keelan Cole along the sideline on third and long in overtime, that was really really encouraging stuff from a young guy. You worry about his conf- confidence maybe being shaken after two weeks, and that was really nice to see. Uh, I think Fields, you know, it was a, it was not he didn't have to do too much to win that game. Uh, we'll get to more of the Lions from that game later and why they made it so easy, but. He did, he did what he had to do. Nice to see him not take it, or he took one sack, and it was a, it was a big one. But anything's an improvement over taking nine sacks, and, and he's generally, you know, he's got room to grow still. And, I mean, Mac Jones, 19 straight completions, tying Brady's career high right in front of Brady in prime time. Like, yeah, they didn't win the game. Yeah, they only scored 17 points again. But there's still a lot to be positive about if you're Mac Jones after that game. And Lance... I mean, half his yards came on one play where Jamal Adams just decided not to cover Debo Samuel. So I think people need to slow down on the uh, let's hand the ball off to Lance and let it be his season. And, and some of our friends think that way. Big Big Nolan, is he's been clamoring for the Trey Lance train this whole time. But I, I say still give it some time. But good to conclude our rookie QB segment for the week. Uh, Tremendous time chronicling this class moving forward as well. Uh, Let's talk about some teams that maybe had a bit of the lights dimmed on all the positivity we were shining on them earlier in the season. The Broncos and Panthers are our two 3-0 teams who had their first real tough test this week and I don't I, failed is a strong word, but the Panthers got blown out pretty good for most of that game by the Cowboys, and the Broncos, granted, lost Teddy Bridgewater at halftime, but never really looked competitive with Drew Locke under center, and I think the main takeaway I want to bring from these two games is that we need to stop overreacting when teams have 3-0s and built right into their schedule.
1: Listen, I... I really agree. I mean, that Cowboys-Panthers game especially did not look as close as the scoreboard let on. Cowboys were up 36-14 to at one point. Outside of Sam Newton, a.k.a. Sam Darnold, you know, leading the league in rushing touchdowns, you know, finding the end zone twice with his legs, twice through the air. But he made that game a lot closer than it really was on the scoreboard. Panthers were up, uh, or were down big, uh, headed into the fourth quarter, and they got some garbage time scores. But Listen, I think the Panthers and Broncos both really had not faced anyone for the first three weeks of the season. Panthers had a slightly tougher schedule than the Broncos. I think the Broncos had only faced the two New York teams as well as the Jaguars. And, you know, say what you want about any of those franchises. Some of them looked better than others this week. But, it you know, it's, it's really been some uh, easy pickings. I'd still say that, you know, Panthers D is solid. Broncos Total roster construction beyond quarterback is solid. They've dealt with some uh, injuries at skill positions, but uh, yeah, let's let's not overreact too much to three and zero starts. I still, I'm a little bit higher than Jackson on some of these on both of these teams. Really, I still think you know Brian Burns is really impressed for the Panthers. I still think the Broncos have one of the best secondaries in football, just both in terms of depth and top end talent. But yeah, this was. This was two three and teams running into two legitimate Super Bowl contenders in the Cowboys and Ravens, respectively, and they got waxed. They got you know really shown that you know it, there's still a lot of work to be done with both of these teams. Uh, listen, you gotta you gotta get a reality check eventually. Like I said, water always always finds its level.
0: Yeah, and for the Broncos, Bridgewater was not good in the first half of this game either. Not good and the I think you just have to remember that the three teams they played, Jags, Jets and Giants were widely considered if not the three worst teams in the league coming into this week, then at least three of the bottom 5. So it is, it is a reality check. It's something where we looked at their schedule ahead of the season. We said, oh, wow, the Broncos could really be 3-0, and and then they actually got there, and we just forgot altogether that that was who they had played because we were so excited. And that zero always looks so sexy in the loss column. But I think it was just time to take a you know a little bit of a step back and realize this team still has a, a good bit of growing to do. And I'm, high, I'm pretty high on the Panthers. I don't want to, uh, you know... You, Maybe you're a touch higher, but I think it's extremely close. Because I still think that defense is vastly improved. I love what they have going on with the coaching staff. Still figuring out my feelings about Darnold this season, but I think they'll be there in the wild card picture come you know mid December. So I'm not I'm not writing them off at all. Um, we have a bit of a look ahead for our last takeaway uh, before we get into some game balls. But uh, Kale was looking at the schedule for next week, and he was just happening to to salivate over that Sunday night football game, and he's had a lot to say about both the Bills and Chiefs so far this year, so I'm going to just have you take it away. Tell me why this game is going to be so exciting.
1: Yeah, man, I am my My second takeaway from this week is that I am just so excited for this Bills-Chiefs game. Bills, especially, I know they've beaten up on some bad teams, but that's what good teams have to do, is they beat up on bad teams, and the Bills offense has really beaten up on some bad teams to the tune of 118-21 to through their last three games. Their defense through three weeks, uh, you know, this week's numbers have yet to come in, but their defense is second best in DVOA in football and will be by far the biggest test the Chiefs have faced this season. The Chiefs' defense is hemorrhaging points. This is the third week in a row that the Chiefs have allowed 30 straight points. You know, the Browns in week one were just a single point away from actually making that four weeks in a row and if you factor in the Super Bowl and things like that that record stretches on further but I mean this is a real test for this Kansas City Chiefs team that has already faced a considerable amount of tests for it being so early in the season Uh, I do understand that the Chiefs are bringing in Josh Gordon Uh, that news broke hours after we published the pod or hours after we recorded the pod last weekend. And apparently, news is coming in that he's 7% body fat right now, kind of shape of his life type deal. And this isn't, you know, I mean, the last time we saw him, he had a couple catches from the Seattle Seahawks. And that's the NFL though. The Last time we saw him in a football uniform, he was playing in fan controlled football, catching Hail Marys from Johnny Manziel, if you
0: could believe that. Oh, I can believe that. That seems like a pair <laughs> that was always destined to be on the same field at some point.
1: <laughs> but, I mean, this is. The Chiefs, the Chiefs are in a really unique position right now. They've already faced three of the most aggressive teams in football, analytically speaking: Cleveland, Baltimore, and Los Angeles. Three very skilled positions, and I understand, kind of like Dallas, Carolina, that that Philly game wasn't as close as it led on to be, but it was still forty-two thirty. It was a two-score game, and outside of Buffalo after, or outside of uh, Washington, which follows Buffalo, uh, they've got a. Small stretch of easy games. Tennessee hasn't looked as good. New York Giants are the New York Giants, but then they've got Green Bay, Vegas, Dallas. Then they've got th- after their bye, they've got three divisional games in a row versus Denver, versus Vegas at LA. It's it's a tough road ahead for Kansas City, and this is probably going to be the biggest test of the season. Now, I'm a big. Uh, I don't know how this Bills offense is panning out right now. I don't think I've been massively impressed. I don't know about you, Jackson. No, it's,
0: it's the competition. It's uh, The Bills have been putting up points, and I think we too easily we, – we, we look at points and we think that equals great offense, whereas what the Bills have been facing in actuality is a lineup of some of the least impressive quarterbacks you could possibly see in the NFL in 2021. Big Ben, who they lost to, mind you – Tua slash Jacoby Brissett, Taylor Heineke, and Davis Mills. Like that's, if you're going to pick up a a police lineup of the quarterbacks that you would want to feast on, I think that's the lineup. And when you create so many turnovers and when the opposing defenses, which are admittedly not bad that they've been facing, when those opposing defenses have to be on the field for 38, 42 minutes a game, you're going to score more points just naturally. And I don't think they're I think that's where some of the disparity exists between the points on the scoreboard and the efficiency numbers, the DVOA numbers that you're referencing here with the Bills.
1: Yeah, and that being said, these DVOA actually really respects the defenses of these four teams. And, you know, Houston looked. Houston's defense looked very competent at points. I did make the overreaction comment that if Tyrod Taylor was the quarterback of Houston, this would be a... A much closer game, and it would shape up to be a, a pretty big upset between Houston and Bills and Buffalo. But uh, it's it'll it'll remain to be seen. I think actually this this Chiefs defense, one of the worst in the league at this point. It's it's not going to be uh, too hard for Buffalo to rack up points, especially against his secondary and with the offensive line that they have. It's uh, it's going to be a high scoring game. I haven't looked at any of the numbers out of Vegas yet, but take the over. No matter what it is, just take the
0: over. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it's an AFC Championship rematch. You can't can't blame us too heavily for looking forward to it already. There's a lot more to talk about from this week, though, and I'm just going to take that as a ram- an on-ramp straight into our game balls, because somebody from the Chiefs was getting one, and his name is Tyreek Hill. Now, let me just read you a stat line from yesterday for Tyreek Hill. 11 catches on only 12 targets, 186 yards, so that's 16.9 yards per catch, three touchdowns. And one of his best catch of the day wasn't even a touchdown. It was the sideline. He got four toes down right in front of the referee and did a front flip and knocked the ref over. Uh, and it was just one of those moments where you realize how much more athletic NFL athletes are than regular people, because he's in the middle of doing this gymnastics act where he's getting his feet down and all he does is slide into this ref who's average Joe like me and you and the ref falls all over himself and and just puts it on display for all of us to see. So Tyreek Hill, I think, had been hearing some of the whispers about, you know, maybe not being completely himself this year and he's also coming off a pair of games where the opposing defenses really chose to key in on him and say, you know, if we're going to have to choose between doubling Tyreek, doubling Kelsey, they went with Tyreek. Yesterday, it seemed to be much more the case that the Eagles decided to key in on Kelsey, and Hill went absolutely bananas. And he also got double the targets of anyone else on the roster. So clearly, he was the feature game plan, and he made the Eagles pay over and over and over again. It was fun to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's maybe the only reason this Chiefs team ended up just dominating the Eagles secondary I mean it is it is impressive what Tyreek, and, uh, Tyreek Hill can do and it's it, there's very few defenses like LA that have a Derwin James that can you know one-on-one Kelsey and force two people on Tyreek Hill where they can actually genuinely offer coverage to both of them and for most defenses it becomes a pick your poison thing you take away Travis Kelsey who had four catches for 23 yards, and Tyreek Hill pops off and nearly picks up 200. You double Kelsey or you double Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey ends up with two touchdowns, dominating the red zone and helping the Chiefs put up 40 points a game. Again, it's another reason to look forward to next week because it is it's going to be a blast. This is going to be a really good Bills defense headed up against one of the most high-powered offenses in the NFL. And, again, Josh Gordon just adds that little bit extra piece of depth. You know, Byron Pringle doesn't have to be the second leader in receptions for the uh, Chiefs offense behind Darrell Williams and Miko Harbin. When those guys are getting two catches a game to Tyreek Hill's 11, you know, Tyreek Hill combined is getting more – double the targets of the next three receivers. So it's going to make this Chiefs offense even more dynamic than it's been – And it's, you know, it's going to be so fun to watch. I can't wait. Just absolute fireworks.
0: We love it. And who is the offensive game ball for Kale Clinton going to go to this week? Listen, it's, we've
1: already kind of poo pooed him a little bit on this podcast, but I mean, credit where credit's due, Danny Dimes for the New York Giants. A 400-yard game. Two touchdowns for him. You know, it's it's even more impressive that you know a big lanky guy like Danny Dimes can also double as a big rushing threat in this system. Picking up the Giants' first win of the season, an overtime stunner in a you know game-winning drive mostly set up by Danny Dimes. But you know, hats off to Saquon Barkley too. Picking up 52 yards in the run game, getting involved with another 74 yards in the passing game, a touchdown rushing, a touchdown passing, the game-winning score. But, I mean, this is, you know, it almost comes down to a bit of free Daniel Jones at this point. I'm not going to get too hyperbolic about it, but, I mean, uh, Daniel Jones looks very solid. It's, I I think it is really, the shortcomings of Daniel Jones come at the, uh, come from the situation that he's been put in. The Giants have offered him the best possible skill position group that he's had in his three years as a starter here, but it also ends up being that he's playing behind one of the worst offensive lines in the league, and he's also playing with a coach that despite his talks of playing fearless and trying to uh, you know, lead the league in aggressiveness, he's one of the softer and more conservative coaches in football, punting it in a lot of fourth down situations where other coaches in a renaissance of fourth down attempts Uh, he's been punting a ton. And I get he's a special teams guy, and maybe he believes that there's some intrinsic value to field position and punting that most coaches just can't understand and don't have as big a brain as Joe Judge. But it's it's really coming at the behest of the performance of Daniel Jones. I think he's also really being held back by a guy like Jason Garrett. But, I mean, just raw talent, raw potential. Uh, This is a quarterback that, if the Giants decide to move on from him for whatever reason... He'll he'll find some success. It, I can see it. I can see him having a bit more. I, I think he could have a Sam Darnold esque revival with another team. And I think you know, Daniel Jones is actually more equipped to be a better quarterback than Sam Darnold in a potential second coming with a new team with a fresh start. I I think you know, just in terms of pure tape he's putting out, in terms of just pure ability I've seen Sunday to Sunday, the the highs are high. And I think a lot of the lows are magnified even further by a bad situation that he's been put in.
0: Well, I think even more so than that, you saw the lows to an extreme degree in his first two years with the turnovers, and they were, they were extremely bad. <laughs> Daniel Jones had 36 turnovers in his first 20 games as a starter. Like, that is absolutely inexcusable in all ways shapes and forms and now we're starting to see him clean it up a little bit and it's pretty encouraging i mean he threw a pick yesterday that shouldn't have been you know it's one of those hail mary halftime interceptions that shouldn't really count on your stats as an interception that was his first pick of the year and he's still only lost the one fumble like we always knew that if he could clean up the turnovers the good moments with danny were good and I think the more and more he's able to just allow the the play to speak for itself and get out of his own way and not try to force balls into the tightest possible windows, we're starting to see what he can be. And what he can be is a 400-yard passer who can go down and get you a game-winning drive in overtime. So big, big ups to Danny Jones. And obviously the Giants have a lot of issues still to work through, and I don't think this win makes them playoff contenders for this year. But there's definitely still hope for the Daniel Jones quality starter resurgence um, this year and moving down the line. So big ups to him. And let's move on to the defensive side of the ball. Uh, Cale, you had the interesting take that somebody on a losing team should still get the, the game ball this week. Tell me why that is.
1: Yeah, I mean, back to that Sunday Night Football game, man, Matthew Judon was everywhere. Had a sack, QB, had three hurries, three run stops, two tackles for a loss. You know, he was either in the backfield, creating pressure. If Tristan Wirfs didn't practically drape himself onto Judon's helmet, he probably would have had a strip sack on Tom Brady at one point in that game. He was, you know, it's been really impressive. I said he looks like Gossamer from Looney Tunes in that red long sleeve that he constantly wears. It looks like he stuffed Gossamer into a football uniform, just a big red monster bearing down on the quarterback. It's been really, really fun to watch him. It's it's revolutionized a what was a very weak passing uh, pass rush defense from New England last year, and it's been one of the better acquisitions that New England made in their spending spree in the offseason. The offensive side of things hasn't really panned out. Kendrick Bourne looks good. Nelson Aguilar is Nelson Aguilar. The tight ends haven't necessarily worked in at this point. Matthew Judon especially has really given this defense and identity that they haven't quite seen since the boogeyman era of 2018.
0: Yeah, I mean, the defense, just to echo your point, they've had some really, really solid rushing stats, and that's something that was basically non-existent last year. We thought the secondary was really the strength of this team from a defensive perspective, and here we are through week four, and I, I saw going into last night, it was Judon and Josh Uche were the two most efficient pass rushers in the league so far this year. So you love to see that if you're a Pats fan. Now, you you touched on it. We've, we've still got a long way to go in terms of figuring out this offense and how we're going to incorporate everyone, but... Judon absolutely deserves it. I did not mean to ruffle feathers there. Uh, he, he earned his game ball this week, and I think that if his team can do anything to repay him, it's to make it a little easier on him going up against Davis Mills on this coming Sunday. But to my defensive game ball, I will go with someone who picked up the W, and the reason that I like doing a game ball like this is it's a player on a team who came into this week really struggling, looking for their first win of the season, and buckled down in the situations they needed to buckle down and got that win. And I'm talking about the Indianapolis Colts, and I'm talking about Darius Leonard, who is unquestionably the leader of that Colts defense. And we thought that this was a really solid Colts D coming into the year, and it's not like they were getting exposed and and picked apart through the first three games, but they took a trio of L's to some solid offenses, and they really needed this one against Miami, or I think we would have all said their season was pretty much over. They had to go on the road to Miami, Jacoby Brissett playing quarterback, granted, we don't think he's necessarily starter quality, but he's fringe, he's right there, and they really shut him down. I mean, his numbers don't even look as bad as the story really was on the field's uh, with them scoring 14 points in the fourth quarter when it was basically over already. Uh, and unquestionably, Leonard was the leader of that defense, had the, led, led the team in tackles, led the team in solo tackles, had a tackle for loss, batted a pass away, and was Johnny on the spot, pick up the fumble when Grover Stewart came in and stripped Jacoby on third down. So really just had an all-around great day, and as he goes, I think that Colts defense goes. So great signs for them moving forward.
1: And listen, I won't totally poo-poo Jacoby Brissett. I think, honestly, I think the lows that we saw out of Jacoby Brissett on Sunday this week are really no different than the lows we've seen from Tua thus far. And I think, honestly, Jacoby Brissett as a game manager, Jacoby Brissett, what he could do in the run in the short yardage running game is definitely pretty exceptional. So what the Colts were able to do on Sunday was pretty impressive in itself and actually just really be able to wreck things from a game plan perspective. But yeah, the Colts really needed this win. The AFC South picture right now, it seems like no one wants to win it. The Titans giving the Jets their first win of the season. The Houston Texans, uh, you know, without Tyrod Taylor at the helm, look exceptionally awful. <laughs> Jacksonville, you know, who, who I thought was a dark horse to win the AFC South if all things panned out right for the Jaguars. I, I, listen, I got the rest of the AFC South right where no one wanted to win this division. Things were going to go south for a lot of teams. It's just. Things haven't exactly gone right for Jackson to 0 and four to start, but yeah, this is really within grasp for the Indianapolis Colts, and I think they've struggled with that. a lot of offensive line help, and they've really had to lean on their defense for a couple of these uh, chances to stay in games. You know, they even played the Rams tight in their matchup with them. Uh, It's listen, I think it starts and ends with Darius Leonard. I you know doing everything, having pass deflections, even it was you know just an all around great showing by him.
0: You know, I do want to push back on an idea, on a concept you just dropped there, because I think some things are going right for some people in Jacksonville, namely Urban Meyer, looking like he had himself a time on Saturday night. Listen, so. it
1: makes me want to check out Dublin, Ohio.
0: Seriously, <laughs> what a what a mess! I, I can't believe bringing in that guy as a head coach was ever on somebody's mind this year after the perform after just the career he's had and the patterns he's displayed, but I'm sure he's hard at work getting ready for week five, so no need to worry about it. Um, Special teams, I want to save my special teamer for last because I have uh, have some punts to talk about that are going to get me really excited, so I'm going to let you take the lead here on special teams game balls. Yeah, listen,
1: you know me, I like special teams fireworks, and I'm going to lead it off again with another special teams touchdown. This one going to DeAndre Carter of the football team over in Washington, taking one back to the house for 101 yards against the Atlanta Falcons this week. And in all honesty, compared to the uh, compared to the Jacksonville Cardinals' 109-yard uh, Auburn, Alabama-esque touchdown on the returned field goal, DeAndre Carter made this one look easy. We watched the replay right before recording this, and you could see the lane form <laughs> for DeAndre Carter about. Fifteen yards before he even hits it, just an avenue to run down. You could drive a car through that hole. It, you know, and just the impressive speed for him to be able to cover end zone to end zone. Just he didn't have to do a lot of footwork. He didn't have to do a lot of maneuvering. It was just hit that hole and go. It it really it wasn't a big make and miss type deal. It was just pure speed and what a way to get your first
0: touchdown as a professional football player. Oh, absolutely, and not only that. This was a team that was trailing, coming out of halftime, opening kick of the second half, and an offense that had put two drives together earlier in the game, but with Taylor Haneke at the helm, you don't necessarily trust it. and. He just comes out and completely reverses the momentum that had existed coming out of the half, and I I don't know if they win that game without this touchdown. It's also the first kick return touchdown of the year so far, so it's a pretty chalk excellent pick for a special teams game ball, and I'm happy we included it. But let's talk punting (laughs) because (laughs) yesterday there was a team that won a game holding their opponent to seven points, despite their quarterback only throwing for 155 yards on 33 passing attempts. And that's going to be Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield did not play a game that would make anyone think he should ever be in an MVP conversation, uh, even a quarterback who's capable of leading his team through the playoffs. But the Browns still improved to 3-1 and one yesterday, and I have to say a major reason they did that was the punter with the best name in all of football, Jamie Gillen, a.k.a. the Scottish Hammer. Now, his net average for the day got knocked down a little bit by one that he kind of mishit, bringing the average yard all the way down to 39.9, which is not impressive. But when you talk about a guy who was on the field for seven punts, which is tied for the most we saw around the league this week, he downs three of them inside the 20. He booms a 54-yarder with a five-second hang time and really just kept the vikings behind the sticks all day i mean the vikings outgained the browns in this game uh on the through the air their rushing attack was not very impressive but uh still enough to keep them in it and i think if we don't have the scottish hammer out there just keeping them behind the eight ball all afternoon uh there's a very solid chance the vikings get the home win and the browns are only a two and two football team so this is the reason this game ball exists is to give shine to guys who might not get mentioned at any other point in the season and frankly there was no way I wasn't going to find a way to talk about the Scottish hammer at some point in the season so here it is
1: yeah I mean in an in a game where neither offense can get anything going uh the name of the game is going to be field position and again the only way that you're probably going to get that is by pinning them deep and you know That's why you have a guy like the Scottish Hammer coming in, pinning guys deep. That's you know it's it's Joe Judge's wet dream, to be able to hold (laughs) teams down with that just low scoring, mauling a defense, just keeping them down pat. And I mean yeah, that was a real uh, that was a real sad showing for Kirk Cousins and that Vikings offense that a lot of people thought would be pretty high this year. But again, credit to the Browns defense for holding them down, and credit to the Scottish Hammer for pinning them deep to start it out.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is just another classic case of anytime you think you have a read on the Vikings, think again, because it was two straight weeks of impressive offensive performances, two straight games that they should have won against NFC West opponents, and I think they were a popular pick hosting a Browns team that had gotten wins but not necessarily looked like world beaters, and they just proved once and for all that you should never trust the Minnesota Vikings, so... Moving on, because there's only so much you can talk about, Kirk Cousins and the Vikings, we've got some uniforms to talk about from yesterday, and I'm gonna take the lead this week because we've talked about it, we've teased it a couple times already in the season, that as soon as the Miami Dolphins broke out their throwbacks, they were gonna get in this, in this section of the podcast for me. And not only did they do it, they did it in style on their home field yesterday, I think of all the teams that wear white at home, Miami kind of wears it one of the best because it's always sunny down there, it's hot, it's, it's just kind of a, a Florida vibe, and those, those throwbacks are so gorgeous. They're, uh, it's, it's a proper use of a gray face mask for a throwback perspective. It's a great old logo, way better than the new Dolphin, and the colors are so good, and the striping's so good, it's just a perfect uniform. The Colts, meanwhile, really held their own. They're always up there for me in terms of a team that just keeps it classic. The horseshoe on the side of the helmet always plays. Two colors in the color scheme is all you need when you wear those two colors as well as the Colts do, and I think this was the best-looking game of the year so far. So that's my take. Kale, I want to hear what you have. Listen,
1: it is is a tough decision to make for me. I thought there were a lot of really good visual – uh, offensive or er, visual jersey matchups you know you can go pittsburgh green bay just two timeless old uniforms uh i kansas city philly i don't want to give it to kansas city twice but i mean those kelly greens from the uh from the eagles kansas city's red uniforms it looks really good i'm gonna give a uniform shout out that is going to make jackson sick to his stomach I'm going to go Jets-Titans. I think the Jets all-whites are <laughs> so nice. I think they're real crisp. I think it, you know, especially Zach Wilson scrambling around for his life of points, it makes him look look a little faster. I love the green helmets. love the green accent and the numbers. And I don't know. There is something about just the pure visual identity of the Titans uniforms. You know, the shoulder, the silver shoulders matching the sort of uh, pattern of the Titans tee. I honestly Jackson isn't I'm a pretty big fan of their number font on the jerseys. I think it's at least got some good identity to it.
0: You can't read it bro I just can't there's no it, it looks nice up close but you zoom out on TV and you're like was that number 31 or number 48 It's miserable
1: Listen points for visual creativity that's all I'll say it's a <laughs> brand it's brand identity for me and I think this was a pretty good matchup for two teams but again, a lot of uh, I thought there were a lot of good uh, good jersey matchups this week, but I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to some underrated jerseys in my opinion.
0: Well, I'll tell you what I was scared with where you were gonna go with that because in our text chain yesterday, Kel mentioned that he liked the look of Rams Cardinals. Now, if anyone read my uniform column at the end of last year, I had the Cardinals with only two teams below them at an abysmal thirtieth ranking, and one of the only two teams beneath them was the Rams, and Cale even said that he was really digging the Rams' piss-soaked numbers yesterday, which is exactly what they look like, and that's not something to be proud of. So, listen, glad we didn't listen, let, me,
1: let me... It's tough to convey sarcasm over text. <laughs> the the yellow-to-white gradient on the Rams' uniforms is one of the grosser things in football. I don't understand... Like, gradients have become a thing? The Atlanta Falcons kind of started it off with the red to black gradient, Disgusting. which I think is pretty abysmal, and I think it looks even worse on the Rams. It again, yeah, piss soaked is maybe the only uh, visual way I can describe it because it is not pretty. Don't don't take that one seriously. But yeah, mm. I thought Titans Jets. I, I Jackson doesn't like either of them really, but you know, I'll give them points for creativity.
0: Yeah, I like the Jets' helmets. That's the one uniform aspect of this matchup that I really do like. Uh, I think when they had the white helmets for all those years, it was missing out on an opportunity, and I'm glad they went back to the green. That's the only positive thing I have to say about that game. But the beauty of this segment is that you're getting some visual identities. You're getting some visual opinions from two guys that see the world very differently. One of us who has normal eyesight and one who has rapidly deteriorated cordias. So... That is, that is what it is. Keratoconus
1: is a bitch. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but uh, let's move on to our head scratchers of the week, and I'd like for you to take the lead on this one, Kale, because I basically shared it and just wanted to hash out some of the uh, get get crunchy, as you said yesterday. You're, we really want to dive into a decision that was made at the end of the Sunday night game.
1: Yeah, listen, that, that decision for Nick Falk to kick a 56-yard field goal, uh, Al Michaels, Again, I, I can't talk about commentators' curse enough. It happened last night where, Chris Collinsworth was talking about Mac Jones avoiding pressure all night and then immediately gets sacked on back-to-back plays. Al Michaels was begging for Nick Foles to miss a field goal all night between talking about his leg injury and the consecutive field goals he had made in a row. It ends up coming down to death by doink. New England misses a 56-yard field goal in the sleeting rain, on the off the left post. Now let me get it down for you. Nick Folk had a bad planting leg. Uh, this was a field goal on fourth and free three that had matched his career long as a kicker.
0: And this is not a young kicker we're talking about here. No, like, this 36, is 36, A years old? seasoned
1: veteran kicker, and I think it's a bit of a detriment on Bill Belichick's or on Mac Jones's part rather that Bill Belichick and Josh McDaniels didn't trust Mac Jones to pick up three yards. Uh, and Bill Belichick said that there was never a thought in his mind of going for it in that situation. Why not? Given, given Tom Brady a minute to go get that uh, you know last score, or whatever it may be, it's, you know, it's a really, really tough decision, especially with two timeouts left. Mac Jones misses the third and three to set up that fourth and three. Now, let's get into win probability. You can have your own opinion on win probability, but for lack of a better resource it is one of the better ways to gauge potential possibilities for outcomes based on decision making. Now, there are four resources I'm going to be using for win probability. Uh, Next Gen Stats, which is NFL's uh, own in-house model, powered by the Amazon AWS service. Edge Sports, which is the parent company of football outsiders. Uh, Ben Baldwin of The Athletic has built his own model of win probability. And ESPN, which uh, usually ends up being the contrarian Uh, to a lot of these more hyper-aggressive models that want teams to go for it more. They seem to have some really questionable uh, numbers on decision-making. Now, the way I'm going to describe this is uh, percentage difference in win outcome based on what they would do. Uh, So, in each of these scenarios, uh, the decision, uh, when I say the percentage, this is the uh, differential in percentage of win probability based on the decision they were making. And uh, how I'm going to present it is the favor- is what each one of these favors. So next-gen stats on fourth and three with uh, a minute and change to go. Uh, 59 seconds exactly, actually, uh, on fourth and three to kick that field goal. Next-gen stats preferred the decision to go for it by about 10 and percent in win probability. Edge Sports's model favored go for it by 11 and percent Ben Baldwin's model, a little more conservative, favored it by two point six percent, and ESPN was the only model to favor the field goal kick by seven and a half percent. Now, I don't think those models factor in weather. I actually think Ben Baldwin's does
0: to a degree, but just Next Gen says they do as well, and I think that's part of the reason they had it so high too. Just it's given all the
1: circumstances of Nick Folk's injury, uh, how much time was left on the clock, the opponent that they were facing, and yeah. Uh, the Bucks had had a couple of receiver drops, big, especially that Antonio Brown touchdown that was right in the basket, that just got you know it, that was a game sealing touchdown that you know would have been the perfect way to end things a hyper competitive game. But Brady you know ends up getting the game winner. Uh, but yeah, just that decision to kick the field goal. I think there was way too much time left on the table for Brady. Even if they did make it, uh, Tampa Bay still had two timeouts left. They had to only go probably 40 to 50 yards down the field for them to make a big game winner. And Ryan Suckup did miss one short-yardage field goal early in the game, so, you know, factor that in as you will. But, I mean, if you can't trust Mac Jones to pick up three yards on fourth down, I get the game's over as is if you miss it, but the game's also very much still in play if they make the field goal. And if you make the fourth down, you know, you can pick up a touchdown and make this game totally out of reach. You can give yourself an easier field goal for an injured Nick Falk, Or, you know, you miss it and the game's over anyway. So there's a lot of options you can have, and I think that Bill probably picked the worst-case scenario, kicking a field goal out from that far in those conditions.
0: Yeah, I just have to say, watching that game and – really feeling like I had a good feel for the game flow, I just didn't think there was any chance the kick was going in. I was surprised it came as close as it did off Nick Folk's leg, given, one, that it was matching his career long, which was not kicked in the rain, not even kicked outdoors, and it was 10 years ago, versus now we're looking at a a, a bad plant leg and a maelstrom on the field, whereas it was Mac Jones's game. And I, I recognize that... He had kind of been, you know, smoking mirrors on the last couple of drives. He he got the P.I. call earlier in the drive to even make it uh, past midfield. But I just didn't like seeing the game taken out of his hands and having it end on the foot of a kicker who we didn't know until the day of the game whether or not he was even going to be able to play. So
1: Listen, credit that, to Folk, though. That's, you know, it had the distance. Uh, it's about probably six inches from making it, but yeah, it just it's a really questionable decision.
0: My it wasn't opinion. a recipe for success. I, it would have been my head scratcher as well. I will now talk about something that was ghastly yesterday, and it wasn't. There wasn't really one moment that I could point to, but it was so head scratching that I'm just going to highlight it. It's going to be the Lions red zone offense. (laughs) Jared Goff, the Jared Goff experiment has been extremely up and down. It's an 0-4 team. I think uh, even optimistic Lions fans would admit that their expectations probably have been uh, underwhelmed at this point. And I think this game was the worst it's been so far. And the really upsetting thing was they made it inside the 10-yard line of the Chicago Bears five times five times, and they got one score out of it. They got a touchdown in the third quarter. Other than that, we had two turnovers on downs and two fumbles. Like, that is as bad as it could possibly get for a red zone offense, and this was a game where, I mean, we talk about that difference with the Colts between 0-3, and and then whether you're going to be 0-4 or 1-3, it's basically like season over versus let's, you know, keep extending the hope for another week, and I think this game was right there for the Lions. They they basically matched the Bears in total yards in the first half. I think it was about 195 to 175, and their red zone offense was just so abysmal that they just completely took themselves out of that game. So I'm I'm awarding the head scratcher to the offensive unit as a whole because it was ghastly to watch.
1: Yeah, I mean that fumble off the face mask was off the snap of a ball was comedy pure Lions <laughs> Lionsing. In just the worst possible fashion, I'll give uh, I'll give Jared Goff some credit. You know he's looked average. I would say I I think I think he's managed with having what would look as like the receivers haven't been terrible, but they're absolutely you know a two through four or a three through five in terms of what you would want on a typical wide receiver depth chart. I think it's a lot of their losses have come down to just abysmal defensive play, even allowing the Bears to look. This potent offensively uh, is a pure is a testament to how bad it's been, especially after coming off of last week against the Browns for the Bears, and they've faced a lot of injuries. They've lost I think two guys to season-ending injuries in back-to-back weeks in the secondary alone. It's been a rough go for the Dan Campbell kneecap biters, but I mean, yeah, it's it's you gotta get more points. You gotta get more points on five trips to the red zone. It's it you can't win games without it.
0: No, and how far away is this Detroit team, too? Because we look at the way they're constructed. Now, they've got Goff under contract for another year after this. They've got the first-round picks from the Rams. You're curious to see how they use them. They're not going to be high first-rounders. You look at how they've drafted recently. Akuda has been, I'd have to say, a disappointment so far. Plus, he's hurt now. You look at... Sewell, like yes, it's great to have a, a stalwart tackle, but if you're protect, like who are you protecting? Uh, and the running game is, who knows where Swift and Jamal Williams will be two years from now? They have a 21 year old and a 23 year old wide receiver. Like I just don't really see the pieces falling into place for this supposed Lions rebuild so far, and I'm I'm very worried about it moving forward in this NFC North.
1: No, I mean they're certainly in the early stages, and I think you know worst case scenario, Jared Goff has a good stopgap quarterback to fill the needs. It was a decision that helped them pick up some extra draft picks and help them pick up some resources to help rebuild this young team. But it's how you want to build a team. You build it from the inside out typically by starting with an offensive lineman you can now have for the next decade, protect your quarterback, whoever that may be in the future. You know, if you've got a semi-decent pass rush, uh, I think this team plays a lot more motivated Uh, than they did in the Matt Patricia era, you know, unquestionably. There's no champagne popping at the end of the season. This is a team that will really seemingly want to play for Dan Campbell, even in, you know, the Ringer piece that did a, uh, the Ringer did a piece on Dan Campbell and interviewed a lot of the Lions players and talked about that he is the real deal and he is someone this team wants to play and fight for. And I think uh, he's, uh, there were a lot of questions given the sound bites he was giving and his questionable level of experience as you know a tight ends coach and a strength and conditioning coach you, you really don't know where that's going to go for an offense but credit where credit's due he's he's gotten you know he's gotten a lot out of an, out of an underperforming squad of troops at this point in time and yeah it doesn't look as pretty but if if they're uh, between a year and three years away from looking competent like it's a it's a decent place to start with at least culture change at this point, point. and you gotta start. Listen, you gotta start somewhere.
0: Well, it's a good thing to have, you know, a little bit of buy-in from your roster. But if they want that culture change to continue, and they want Dan Campbell to, to stick around and be the guy, they start winning some games for him. Because we've seen in the past that you know it's tough to keep a coach around if the team's record is as abysmal as the Lions is setting up to potentially be. So get the guy three, four, five wins this year, and I think that sets them on a more positive path. I'm not saying they can't do that, but it's not off to a good start. You play the Bears again in Detroit, I think you gotta win that one. Gotta pick off a few more along the way and start start showing those signs that you are building towards something in the Dan Campbell era. But let's close up here. We gotta get out of Dodge. We gotta talk Monday night football. It's it's a tradition you know what happened, we don't, and this game features Kale's uh, sweet little side piece, the Los Angeles Chargers, so I just want you to tell me what we're going to see from your boy Justin Herbert tonight.
1: Listen, we've talked a lot about 3-0 teams coming back down to earth, and I think this one might hit home once again. Uh, I think we see another undefeated team in the Los Angeles Raiders Raiders succumb to the Los Angeles, I called them the Los Angeles Raiders, that was the 70s. Uh <laughs> The Las Vegas Raiders uh, will succumb to the Los Angeles Chargers. Uh, I yeah, I think this Chargers team is real hot, uh, coming off a big win against Kansas City. Uh, I hope they continue to you know up the momentum. Uh, you know, Justin Herbert's looking like he's picked up right where he left off. If not improving off of his Rookie of the Year campaign, Mike Williams looks like the sixth overall pick he was meant to be. They're getting a lot out of this offense offensive line is much improved i hope derwin james is healthy because the what the chargers defense was able to do against travis kelsey i pointed this out last week hopefully but it was it was really impressive kelsey picked up half of his yards off of two catches outside of that he had five catches for 50 yards and they this allowed them to actually double tyreek hill and i think you know asante samuel is a rookie of the year candidate at the moment he's performed out of his mind picking up where his father left off when he retired outside of, you know, dropping a game-winning Super Bowl interception, but I won't harp on that. I'm I'm, you know, the 18 and 1 Patriots are embedded in my brain and I'll get over it at We're some moved point.
0: on obviously, right?
1: But I mean, this is a this is a Chargers team that really looks like something special and I think it really this this is going to be a big primetime prove a game for the Chargers. Hopefully, I think the Chargers come out on top. The Raiders pick up their first loss of the year. But, I mean, yeah, this is a Raiders team that's really impressed through three weeks. It'll be a fun game for sure.
0: I'm fascinated to see what the crowd looks like for this game. I'm sure we'll be talking about tomorrow how it was the most pro Raiders crowd you could possibly imagine at a Chargers home game. The Raiders are still very much L.A.'s second, if not first, favorite team, I would estimate. I think... Definitely. Fans have been waiting for this one since SoFi Stadium opened up. You know, the Raiders fans always came in and packed the little (laughs) StubHub Center, but now that they have 65,000 seats to really take control of as the quote-unquote visiting fans, I really think that's going to be a subplot here. Uh, And, you know, I think the Chargers are going to have to fight to overcome that. I do think they're the more talented, more complete team. But... That is something that I think uh, when you when you just look at a, a preview of this game, it doesn't necessarily show up that the Raiders are going to be the de facto home team. So fascinated to check that out.
1: Yeah, Derek Carr said it himself early in the week that this is essentially an extra home game for the Raiders. I, I mean, they really bear down in L.A., and it's the game that even before Derek Carr came to the league that everyone told him that this is the game that Raiders fans show out for and they just dominate Chargers crowds. Uh, there's still a massive contingency of Raiders fans in the Los Angeles area, and this might as well be an away game for the Chargers, even though that that stadium usually ends up being, you know, a neutral territory at best for Chargers fans. But it'll be a fun Monday night game for sure, probably one of the better ones this season, and it's a real shame that the Manning cast won't be back till Week 7. I think they've really wanted a good game to actually cover, and this would have been a great one. But... I think it'll be able to stand on its own from just the pure spectacle as
0: is. Well, here we go. I mean, it's it's a shame from our perspective that we don't get to bring the recap to you, but there are there are time constraints that apply to us as student journalists and whatever else we're doing in our spare time. So uh, we appreciate you all hanging with us week after week. Week four was great. We're sure week five is only going to keep the ball rolling, and we can't wait to talk to you all next Tuesday. Have a good week,
1: guys. Week five shaping up to be a good one.